Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 29 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the critical issues of our day from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's special guest speaker. Nicholas Kristoff is a journalist, author, op-ed columnist, and two-time recipient of the Pulitzer Prize. A graduate of Harvard College and Oxford University, he joined the New York Times in 1984, serving as a correspondent, managing editor, and a widely acclaimed op-ed columnist. In 1990, Mr. Kristoff and his wife, Cheryl Wudon, who is a fellow Times journalist, received a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of China's Tiananmen Square democracy movement. In 2006, Mr. Kristoff earned a second Pulitzer Prize for graphic and deeply reported columns that, at personal risk, focused attention on genocide in Darfur and gave voice to the voiceless in other parts of the world. With his wife, he has written three books, including China Wakes, The Struggle for the Soul of a Rising Power, Thunder from the East, Portrait of a Rising Asia, and his newest book and the topic of today's forum, Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum the writer who has been described as the moral conscience of today's generation of journalists, Nicholas Kristoff. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you indeed very much. I must say that it was a very warm welcome. When I stepped out earlier today, it did feel a little bit brisk. It felt like kind of my vision of Minnesota weather. Um, and so I, I do appreciate you not having it snow on me as a greeting. I'm also really pleased to see uh, these students here and to hear about your involvement in this project in Malawi. I'm sure you're going to benefit people in Malawi, and I'm also sure that you're going to be beneficiaries of that project yourselves. I want to begin by telling you a story from Half the Sky about a very different kind of a school. This is a school that I had visited when I lived in China back in 1990. It was in Hubei province in the center of China in a poor part of Hubei in the Dabia Mountains. And I got to this impoverished school and I met a girl who was the best student on that campus. Her name was Dai Manju. She was a sixth grader, but she'd had to drop out because her parents couldn't pay $13 in school fees. I should say, they, they said they couldn't pay, but there was also clearly an element of the fact that because she was a girl, they felt it really wasn't necessary to pay, that why bother educating a girl? Well, I wrote a front page article in the New York Times about Daimanju and about how the brightest kid in the class had to drop out because she couldn't afford her school fees. And after it appeared, I was deluged with checks from readers to try to help her out. Most of those checks were for $13. <laughs> I guess Times readers at times can be a little bit cheap. Um, <laughs> but I also got one wire transfer for $10,000 to help Daimanju. Well, I took the money down to Hubei province, to the school. I worked out an agreement. 
and they pledged that Daimanju and all of the girls in that district would be able to stay in school as long as they were academically capable. For the first time, academic success there would depend not on your chromosomes, but on your intellectual capacity. I went back to Beijing and I called up the donor. And I said, you just would not believe how far your $10,000 can go in rural China. Well, then there was this sort of confused pause and he said, $10,000? I, I didn't give $10,000. I gave $100. As a trained investigative reporter, I sensed a problem. Um, <laughs> well, it turned out that he had only tried to give $100, but a, uh, a banker at Morgan Guarantee Trust had had a little trouble with decimal points. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, frankly, hugely proud of, of my, my next step. I was a bit of a bully. Uh, I called up the chief spokesman for Morgan Guarantee. I explained the situation, and then I said, well, on the record, are you now planning to dispatch bankers to make all those girls drop out of school? And he said, under the circumstances, we're pleased to make a donation of the difference. <laughs> Well, that became an interesting experiment to see the effect of that infusion of cash and the increased educational opportunities that those girls had compared to those in the other areas. And I visited that community and others in the area. And look, all of the communities in Hubei province have gotten richer, have gotten better educated, and have done better over time. But this community has done so far more than the others. Daimanju herself uh, became the first person in her family to graduate from elementary school, to graduate from middle school, to graduate from high school, and then she earned an accounting degree at the equivalent of a community college and went off to Guangdong province to become an accountant for enterprises there. She sent money back. So many of the other girls who would otherwise have dropped out ended up doing the same thing, uh, got these much better paying jobs, sent money back. They started a virtuous cycle now, because that community had more money, they were able to persuade the authorities to build a road to that village for the first time, to improve the school, to bring electricity there. It was this, uh, this, uh, this, this cycle that, that led to greater educational investment, to greater prosperity there. And it was all fundamentally because a banker at Morgan Guarantee didn't understand decimal points. Um, well, that relates to the two central themes of Half the Sky, of our new book. And the first is indeed, it has to do with the fact that the reason Daimanju didn't go to school, the reason she had dropped out, was not just that the family was poor, but also that they really didn't think girls needed to go to school. It wasn't so much a poverty story as a gender story. And so the first thesis of Half the Sky is that just as in the 19th century, the central moral challenge was slavery, and in the 20th century, the paramount moral challenge was totalitarianism, in this century, the cause of our times is going to be to provide greater gender equity all around the globe.
well, usually when I say that I sense some skepticism, maybe not here uh, right now, um, but I think people often think that that's meant in some kind of hyperbolic sense. Um, it, uh, but it's not. And let me ask you a question that does relate to the impact of gender discrimination around the world. Are there more males or more females in the world today? What do you think? We've got to put this to a vote now. Um, if you uh, think that there are more males in the world today, uh, raise your hand. I'd say about one, two percent. Um, I think mostly males trying to stand up for themselves. Uh, <laughs> now, what about, uh, are there, do you think there, those who think there are more females in the world today, raise your hand. Okay, now we have about 90 percent with a certain amount of abstentions uh, here. Um, well, the latter group, I'm afraid, is wrong. There are, in fact, more males in the world today, not females. In the United States and in Europe, there are more females because if uh, females get equal access to food and health care, then they live longer, and so there are more. But in fact, in most of the world today, they don't get equal access. And as a result, there are somewhere between 60 million and 100 million females who are missing around the globe tilting the global balance toward a, a slight surplus of males. Um, part of this is, is sex-selective abortion, that when a woman is expecting a uh, female fetus, a, 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 a girl baby, then she gets an abortion. Part of it is that if you don't have enough food to go around, you feed your son and you starve your daughter. Uh, part of it is that when your son is sick, you take him to the doctor. When your daughter is sick, you feel her forehead and say, let's see how she is tomorrow. This happens on a huge scale. In India, for the first year of life, boys and girls have a somewhat similar mortality rate because they're dependent on the breast, and the breast doesn't have a son preference. But from age one to age five, children depend on their parents who do have that son preference. And so from age one to five, uh, girls are 50% more likely to die than boys. Um, quite apart from these issues of mortality, there are vast issues of violence, sexual violence and otherwise. Uh, there are issues of acid attacks, and invariably it's always women who have acid thrown at them. Uh, in parts of Congo and Liberia, more than three-quarters of women have been raped in South Africa, there was a survey earlier this year in which 25% of men said that they had raped a woman. Yet, if these issues of abuse and oppression strike me as the central moral challenge of our times, they're not the only issue and they're not the only theme of the book. The second is a happier one. And that is that quite apart from the moral reasons to tackle these issues. At a purely pragmatic level, the best way to fight poverty, extremism, fundamentalism, is to educate girls and empower women, bring them into the labor market. Put it another way. To, to put it another way, women and girls aren't the problem, they're the solution. And you see that in many, many ways for many reasons. The greatest economic resource that poor countries have isn't seams of gold or, dimes or, or mines of diamonds. It's the female halves of their population. 
if you educate these girls, bring them into the labor force, then you also tend to have an effect on birth rates. Uh, it tends to reduce population pressures, which is a huge long-term way of addressing not only the poverty in these countries, but also in the longer term, carbon emissions and climate change as well. There are many, many benefits uh, there. And a third factor is one that relates to what is, in a sense, the dirty little secret of poverty, and that is that an awful lot of suffering is caused not only by low incomes, but also by bad spending decisions, disproportionately by men. And in the book, we talk about research that suggests that for families earning less than a dollar per person per day, which is one of the global metrics of poverty, only about 2% of incomes are invested in their children's education, which has a real positive net economic return. It's a great investment. Conversely, about 20% is invested in, a, or not invested, is, is devoted to, allocated to, a combination of alcohol, tobacco, prostitution, sugary drinks, and extravagant festivals. And that is because the purse strings are typically held by men in the family. If you want to take some from that pool and put it in the education pool, the best way to do that is to give women more earning power, more authority in the household, more property rights, and that can happen. There's been some great research into what happens when you begin to do that. Well, if uh, a focus on women and girls in, in development should be the, uh, the cause of our times, then what would a specific agenda look like? Let me go through a, a few specific items. One issue that has to be at the top of an agenda is sex trafficking. Some of you may know that back in 2004 I did something that was highly unusual as a journalist. Uh, I ended up buying two girls from their brothels in Cambodia and taking them back to their villages and uh, and and, and rejoining them with the house was trying to set them up with an NGO so they could start businesses. Uh, let me tell you how that came to pass. On a previous trip, on my previous trip to Cambodia, I had also written about trafficking, about child prostitution, and I spent an afternoon in a brothel with two girls, interviewing two girls, a 14-year-old who'd been sold by her stepfather and a 15-year-old who had been kidnapped by a neighbor and sold to that brothel. And the 15-year-old told me how her mother, when she'd gone missing, had looked all over Cambodia for her. And if your teenage daughter goes missing in Cambodia, the place you look are the red light districts. And just a week before I got there, the mother had found her in that red light district, in that brothel. Well, in my naivete, I had asked, why didn't your mother take you away? And the girl said, the brothel owner said that she had paid good money for me. My mother would have to buy me back, and my mother didn't have the money. And at that point, I realized that this was very much like 19th century slavery, except that these girls were all going to be dead of AIDS by their mid-20s. And so when I went back as a columnist in 2004, I didn't want the same process to repeat. Frankly, I felt like I'd been exploitative of them, in a sense. I'd gone in... Uh, got my front page story and left them behind to die of AIDS. So I didn't want the same thing to happen. I called up uh, the New York Times lawyers after I after I found two girls that I wanted to make the focus of my columns, Stray Net, Stray Mom. I, I called up the New York Times lawyer and I said, do we have any policy on buying human beings? <laughs> Turned out we didn't. Um, and it was a, 
you know, long, tortuous uh, path for them, we, which we recount uh, in the book. But the larger picture is that this truly is a form of modern slavery. And one difference is the scale. The peak of transatlantic slavery came in the 1780s, when just under 80,000 slaves a year were shipped from Africa to the New World, just under 80,000. Today, the estimates vary considerably, but the State Department estimates that about 800,000, 10 times as many, are trafficked by coercion across international borders, uh, not including those who are trafficked within borders. If human trafficking and modern slavery are one item at the top of the agenda, another has to be maternal mortality. This is something we tend not to think of because here, pregnancy tends to be a joyous occasion. It's not true in much of the world. Uh, globally, one woman a minute dies of complications of pregnancy. In the country of Niger, a woman has a one in seven lifetime chance of dying as a result of pregnancy. And we know how to save these lives. It's not rocket science, but the problem is that as long as those who die have three strikes against them, they're poor, they're rural, and they're female, then they just don't get those resources. And uh, quite aside from uh, the, those who die in childbirth, there are also vast numbers who end up being injured in childbirth. There are about 20 injuries for everyone who dies. A third item on the agenda has to be uh, microfinance and empowerment. And this is something that we're getting better at. And microfinance has to be not only micro lending, but also helping people save, micro savings. But let me give you one example that we talk about in the book. A woman named Saima, Saima Mohammed, who was a woman I met in Lahore, Pakistan. And she had been, she'd had the misfortune of being married to a kind of a deadbeat of a husband who was unemployed, pretty much unemployable. He was a gambler, he gambled away much of the savings. And then when Saima had a second daughter without having a son, her mother-in-law suggested that her husband get a second wife. Uh, Saima was in despair. And at that point, she got a microloan for $65 from a group that was expanding there. She used it to start an embroidery business. She turned out to be really good at embroidery. The markets wanted more and more of her product. And uh, as a result, she began hiring other villagers in the community to make embroidery for her as well. Soon she was hiring 30 families to do embroidery, and then she needed somebody to transport the goods to the markets in Lahore, so she hired her husband. <laughs> he began to have a new perspective on uh, female empowerment. And um, uh, the family became the first to get electricity, they got a television. Uh, as they rose in status, then uh, the the, all the, the family began, again, to, to see girls' education as uh, something that was important. Uh, and just about 10 days, in the meantime, Saima had a third daughter, and then just about uh, 10 days ago, she had a fourth child, also a daughter. Nobody's worrying about having girls now in that village. Um, a fourth area on the agenda is education, girls' education. It's important to note that I think people sometimes think that the central problem here is, um, is just men. And it's not. Uh, if you look at the people who are doing the trafficking, 
very often they're women. If you look at people who cut their daughter's genitals, who arrange that, it's typically the mothers, not the fathers. Uh, the mother-in-law often has a huge say in whether a woman is taken to a doctor when she's in childbirth, and it's often those mothers-in-law who are uh, the problem. If you ask people in Afghanistan and Pakistan whether they are in favor or against wife-beating, then the best predictor of whether somebody is for or against wife-beating is not whether they are male or female, it's whether they live in a city or a rural area. In general, if you live in a city, whether you're male or female, you tend to think wife-beating is a bad idea. If you live in a rural area, even if you're a female, you tend to think it's the right thing. And the way to change these attitudes, the best single solvent for these kinds of, of patriarchal attitudes, absorbed and transmitted almost as much by women as by men, is education. There's a, this is also something that we're pretty good at. Helping people can be uh, a difficult and complicated process, but education is one thing that tends to work out pretty well. And one of my favorite stories involves um, a girl named Beatrice Bira who grew up in Uganda near the Congo border. Her parents did not send her to school, even though she would have loved to go. And then at age nine, the family got a, a gift from a group that I'm sure some of you know uh, called Heifer International. Do you know Heifer? Yeah. Well, as, as most of you know, uh, Heifer's model is that they give uh, livestock to a family to create income-generating potential, and then that family will then pass it on. A church in Connecticut, the Neantic Community Church, gave six goats through Heifer. One of those goats ended up in uh, the hands of Beatrice's parents. They sold milk from that goat to raise a little cash, and because they now had cash, they decided they could send Beatrice to school. So she was nine years old, all the other first graders were six, but she was so eager, she went, she rocketed to the top of the class. All through elementary school, she stayed at the top of the class, middle school, high school, and then she became the first person in her village to go abroad to study. Last year, she graduated from Connecticut College. And at her graduation party, she pronounced herself the luckiest girl in the world and said it was all because of a goat. Now, that leads to a question that I think often is in people's minds, and it, it has to do with the efficacy of aid and of assistance. And I think a lot of people would like to help out, but are deeply suspicious of corruption, of aid organizations and aid bureaucracies, and fundamentally of whether aid at the grassroots really reaches people who need it and makes a difference. And I think it's important to acknowledge that these suspicions have some grounds. These are real problems out there. Anybody who has traveled in the developing world has seen aid projects that have failed. Helping people is harder than it looks. But I think it's also important to know that anybody who has traveled has seen an awful lot of projects that have succeeded wildly beyond anybody's imagination. In general, I'd say the best record has been in uh, interventions in health, education, and microfinance empowerment. We're also getting much better at figuring out uh, what interventions work and how to make a difference, at monitoring, at bringing metrics, at bringing tools in from the business world to get better at those kinds of aid. In addition, there has been a real revolution because of technology 
that enables um, grassroots, bottom-up, open-source aid. In a sense, we wrote Half the Sky in part as a do-it-yourself aid toolkit. And this is something that, is, that really is possible now in a way that 20 years ago it was not. We've also started a website uh, called halftheskymovement.org because um, we want to uh, encourage people to go from reading the book to actually getting active in some of those organizations. So we list organizations on halftheskymovement.org that, uh, that are very active in this area. And we really do want to recruit you to this cause. Uh, change ultimately comes not just from the White House and from Congress passing laws. It comes at a moral level when it's about our values. It comes from the grassroots, bottom-up uh, initiatives, from movements. And so I hope that you will go out and spread the word and get involved, uh, maybe f with a few friends form some kind of a, a take-action club, whether it's lending together on kiva.org uh, or donating through globalgiving.org or finding some organization out there. In, in, um, in Half the Sky, we talk about a group of women in Connecticut who ended up adopting an amazing maternity hospital in Somalia. And initially, they did it because they thought that this would, you know, was the right thing to do, but it would be a sacrifice, it would be a burden. They were busy already. And then gradually, they found it was an incredible uh, source of enjoyment and fulfillment for them. And I think that it really is something that many people uh, find true, that we have a pretty mixed record uh, when it comes to helping others, but those efforts have an almost perfect record in helping ourselves. And so I want to leave you with two elements for that thought about kind of what's in it for you. One has to do with happiness. There's been a lot of really interesting work in social psychology about our happiness level, and it turns out that humans have very different base levels of happiness. Some people are happy most of the time, some people are middling happy, some people are going to unhappy much of the time. And all the things that we think are going to change our base level of happiness don't. But there's one thing that truly does, and that is engagement with some cause larger than ourselves. And that, whatever your starting point, really does raise your base happiness level. And the other has to do with the perspective that I think we gain. And the education, if you will, that we gain when we enter uh, these kinds of initiatives. There was a young woman that I knew in Darfur, an aid worker. She was incredibly strong in Darfur. She was there during some of the worst atrocities and never broke down. And then she came back over Christmas vacation to the United States. She's in her grandmother's backyard, and there she utterly breaks down. She's weeping in the backyard. And you know what it was? Her grandmother had set up a bird feeder. And my friend looked at that bird feeder and she realized that how she had just come from a place where babies were being thrown into bonfires because of the color of their skin and the tribe they belonged to. And that she, in contrast, had won the lottery of birth and had the chance to be raised and to live in a country where we not only had security, but also the extra resources to look out not only after ourselves, but to make sure that wild birds wouldn't go hungry in the winter. And she saw her own good fortune in a new perspective and also a sense of responsibility. 
and I hope we, all of us here, by virtue of the fact that we are here, we have won that lottery of birth. And I hope we will indeed take up that responsibility as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nicholas Kristoff. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank, invite you to join us for our next forum on Thursday, November 5th, when theologian Harvey Cox will be our guest speaker. Information on our fall series is available online at eWestminster.org or WestminsterTownHallForum.org. And now, Nicholas Kristoff, if you would return to the pulpit, I'll present the questions from our audience. I've got several from Southwest High School students to start with. As you research for Half the Sky and do your other work on, in research on uh, issues in developing countries, did you set aside the traditional don't interfere mentality of journalists by becoming involved personally? That's a very good question. And um, in particular, I, I think sometimes the things that I have done have raised eyebrows in the journalistic community, uh, maybe most of all buying those two girls from the brothel. That is not something that is typically in a journalist's job description. <laughs> and yet, you know, when you are out uh, reporting in a place like Darfur, for example, and you come across somebody who's been shot and is going to die, then simply sitting back and pulling out your notebook and camera and monitoring that person as they die seems incredibly unsatisfactory. And at some point, your obligations as a human have to trump your obligations as a journalist to monitor and observe and to stay on the sidelines. And so periodically, that happens when I do come across somebody in that position. I do take them to the hospital. And indeed, in that case in Cambodia, I did end up buying uh, those uh, two girls. Um, in another case, when we were living in China, there was a young man who helped us cover Tiananmen, a young Chinese man. Because of that, he ended up in prison. He escaped. He sought our help fleeing China. The one thing that is pretty clear as a New York Times bureau chief is that you're really not supposed to help escape felons flee the country. Um, but uh, we ended up uh, helping him uh, uh, with as few fingerprints as we could do. He was able to get to the US. And um, so there have been times when I have done that. Uh, and ultimately, I think the best test of it is you know, how, would it, how would it look on a billboard and uh, at that point, I think your human obligations really do um, become the, the first order and your journalistic principle second. Several questions about the interface of religion and the empowerment and treatment of women. What kinds of issues are involved when uh, religious traditions affirm some of the treatment you've described of women? And how do we combat those? Again, a very good question. And this particularly arises in the context uh, of um, Muslim countries that have practices that uh, may be more embedded in culture than in religion, but are perceived as being very close to religion. And there is often deep resentment 
when Westerners come in and tell, say, oh, you know, you're oppressed, fight off. And the women themselves may not regard themselves as oppressed at all. And in those situations, it doesn't work very well. In Half the Sky, we list a couple of examples of efforts that have not worked, that have failed. Because uh, I think we often learn more from our failures than from our successes. And one of those, frankly, was that after 9-11, there were a large number of aid groups that moved off to Afghanistan, opened offices, and really worked very hard for the empowerment of women there. For the most part, they didn't accomplish very much. And they were also mostly just in Kabul. Um, in contrast, there were some terrific Afghan aid groups run by Afghan women themselves. And because they spoke the language, because they were Muslims themselves, they had real credibility. If more of our resources gone to supporting those Afghan aid groups, uh, our, we would have gotten much, much more bang for the buck and, would have, and would have, there would have been less of a backlash. Uh, we would have accomplished more and the aims we were trying to achieve. So I think that uh, this is something that we have to think through more and that often the role of foreigners where there is a risk of a religious backlash is not to stand up front uh, with the megaphone but to be in the back supporting those local people and let them lead the way. Access to reproductive health care seems vital to empowering women. What progress is being made in providing such care? What stands in the way? Reproductive health is an area where there has been real backsliding in recent years. It's, it's a real tragedy. When the United Nations, uh, when UNFPA, the United Nations Population Fund, was set up, uh, in the Nixon administration, the United States was a major supporter of it, and it, there wasn't a uh, polarized political divide about it. But then, because of abortion politics, uh, it became deeply enmeshed in politics, and successive uh, Republican administrations defunded it, so the U.S. didn't give any money at all to the U.N. Uh, population fund. This year, the Obama administration has restored funding to it, but in general, money for family planning, um, well, efforts for family planning uh, have lost ground. We've had a lost couple of decades in family planning. Uh, and one of the real tragedies is that you have this vast, uh, what is called unmet need for family planning. These are women who want family planning assistance and who can't get it because those resources aren't available. Uh, and there are so many reasons why that is important to do, not least cutting the maternal mortality rate that I talked about. You know, one of the simplest ways of cutting the number uh, of women who die each year in pregnancy is reducing the number of pregnancies they have. And so this should be a, a no-brainer to uh, provide more access to family planning to those women who want it. What approaches in your mind are most effective in dealing with human trafficking? government, NGO, et cetera? The U.S. has actually done something that has been quite effective. And uh, to its credit, the Bush administration did a good job uh, in this area. There, it, it's what is called the TIP report, the Trafficking in Persons report, that is published annually. And it rates other countries around the world and how they deal with trafficking and threaten sanctions for those that don't treat it seriously. The result was that for the first time, countries faced this kind of scrutiny. And it, uh, Cambodia is the country that I followed most closely. Uh, 
and the, the, the result there was that the foreign ministry and the trade ministry put, um, you know, called up the national police chief. I'd say, oh, we got to do something about this to avoid sanctions, and he spread the word down. And now, many of the brothels in Cambodia are actually run by police, and they did not close down their own brothels, but they closed down others, which made a real difference. Um, the brothel where I did the most research of all and where I spent a lot of time uh, interviewing the owner to try to understand her, her business model, she, uh, she also, she, her brothel wasn't closed down, but the police began going to her more and more, demanding more and more in bribes. Soon she said she was paying $5 a day in bribes. And so at that point, she decided it just wasn't worth it anymore. It wasn't worth the quite slight risk that she would go to prison. Uh, but more importantly, her expenses were just getting too high. And so she closed her brothel and turned it into a grocery store. <laughs> and that, that is, I think, the kind of uh, pressure that you know, we can apply more of. Um, and I mean, the other area that we have to do better on is that so much of the business model of trafficking in Asia, particularly, is dependent on, uh, on selling virgins. And the, the people run brothels on the side, but they make a lot of their money kidnapping village girls and selling their virginity a couple of weeks later for hundreds of dollars. That is an area that there should be much greater focus for a crackdown. What kind of link is there between the tourism industry, particularly coming out of Europe and America, and sex trafficking? This is actually something that I think uh, in the West we tend to exaggerate the importance of. Uh, I mean, it is a factor in Thailand and Sri Lanka, Belize. There, there are a number of countries where Western tourists are uh, a part of the problem. But overall, the, by far the largest number of customers are local men. And, and they really drive the, uh, the, the business in those brothels. So uh, we can and should uh, crack down on Westerners who pedophiles who go and um, you know, buy 13-year-old girls in these, in these places. And the U.S. is beginning to do that. And I think that's important. Other countries need to do more of that as well. But that is not going to solve the problem. The biggest part of it is local men in these local brothels. Several questions about microfinance. What would you say to someone interested in helping start microfinance projects in the developing world? The area of microfinance that tends to get neglected is micro-savings, not micro-lending. You know, the reality is that um, some portion, maybe I'll say half, of families can benefit from a micro-loan. They can figure out some good way of investing it and, and make a profit on it. But there will also be other families who, if they get a micro-loan, can't figure out a good way of investing it to get more of an income, and those families will be left with simply a higher debt. But in contrast, one of the greatest needs for poor families almost everywhere is a way to save money. Typically, if you're a very poor family, you don't get a salary. You get income, cash income, maybe once or twice a year at the end of the harvest. And then you get this pool of money, and you don't have a bank account or any way of opening a bank account. And so you can keep this money in a tin can in your hut, but that's not secure. There also tend to be money lenders who will accept deposits, but they charge money to accept deposits. In West Africa, you have to pay 80% annual interest to save money. And so, of course, people don't. And the result is that when a woman has obstructed labor and needs to get a C-section, 
then there's no money available to do that. So helping people save money and create these kinds of pools of, of available savings would be hugely important to creating greater prosperity. Typically, how long would you expect it to take for microfinancing to lift a family out of poverty? In general, um, uh, the, the pattern is that a, a family makes a, takes a very small loan uh, and then repays it quite quickly, then takes another loan, repays it, and so on. And usually, I mean, there, there have been some studies that show that in between three and five years, you have a dramatic effect on that family's finances. And it's not only because of that income, but also typically the borrowers, they meet, they discuss how to run a business, they sometimes learn skills, and it's that combination that uh, quite quickly, in less than five years, has a dramatic effect. Student from one of our, a question from one of our students. What makes women better candidates than men for microloans? There are two reasons why people focus on lending to women as opposed to men. One is that uh, women pay the loans back. <laughs> um, and the second is that, um, uh, I mean, contrary to what people think, women's businesses don't actually have a better record of success than men's businesses. Um, men's business, partly because they have fewer household responsibilities, and some studies have actually grown more quickly. But uh, when you look at the income from those businesses, then when women get that money and control that money, then it does precisely go to educate their kids, to start other businesses for the family's welfare. When men get that income, then uh, it tends to go toward beer. One of the women in the audience writes, 40 years ago, the women's liberation movement claimed that the fundamental form of oppression is sexism and that the equality of women would help achieve justice for all. What took you guys so long? <laughs> um, you know, I think one of the, uh, um, one of the interesting uh, changes in the dynamic recently has been that these days the arguments that I think really get the most traction aren't the moral arguments that it's outrageous that women are oppressed or uh, not educated and so on, but is this practical argument. And in particular, the Pentagon, for example, when they look at how to bolster security in Afghanistan, one of the things they figured out is that if you can have more girls educated in a district, then that area is more stable. One of the metrics they use is precisely the proportion of girls who go to school in any given district. And so uh, it is this hard-headed uh, business sense, the, the sense of these generals, that when they weigh in, then all of a sudden the issue tends to have more credibility. And I think we really are reaching a tipping point on this issue. Well, the stories in your book are extremely powerful, and those in your columns as well. They aren't news to those of us who follow issues in the developing world. How do you explain the apathy of the American media and of the American public to the plight of women in the developing world? Well, in general, um, we in the media are pretty good at covering what happened yesterday. We tend to be pretty weak at covering what happens every day. And so as a result, for example, one of the things I think we're worst at is covering public health issues. Um, and these are precisely the kinds of issues that happen every day. And so they're not news on any one day. 
one of the reasons we actually ended up writing Half the Sky, or the, the, the germ of the idea came for us, after we were based in uh, China uh, and had covered the Tiananmen Square, up, uh, the, the massacre there, um, maybe 400, 500 people were killed there. Uh, the next year, we discovered that every year in China, 39,000 baby girls died because they didn't get the same access to food and health care. And we'd never written one column inch about that. And that made us rethink our journalistic priorities, rethink what was news, and rethink how to approach these issues. Once we began to look through that gender prism, then it became a very useful way to see the world as a whole. In your book, you mentioned how your own children reacted to the experiences that you shared with them. What suggestions would you have for parents who want to provide such experiences for their children? Well, frankly, I'm always a little nervous that Child Protective Services is going to come in and, you know, <laughs> uh, you know uh, launch an investigation or something. Partly, you know, we have, we have really made an effort to take our kids on some of these trips to expose them to some really difficult things that, that happen uh, around the world. Um, last, of the Christmas vacation last year, we uh, took our, we made a family trip to Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, and um, we took our kids, after some discussion with my wife, we took our kids into some of the brothels where I had done reporting to meet uh, uh, the girls that I'd known over the years, to meet the brothel owners, and uh, we met a girl, a 13-year-old girl who had been kidnapped, and then because she'd been deemed by the brothel owner recalcitrant, she'd had her eye gouged out. And uh, my daughter was really troubled by that, and afterward we were going to a different brothel, and uh, I was giving that brothel owner a gift as part of my way of ingratiating myself into the brothel to get access, and my daughter was really angry at me for giving a gift to a brothel owner, and I was really proud of her for being angry uh, at me. Um, and, you know, I, th I think that in universities in particular, um, we can do a better job of exposing students to the world as a whole, and univer American universities are indeed getting much better at this over time, but um, I think there's still some ways to go. I think we can encourage gap years before college, uh, more summers abroad, and uh, more junior years abroad to be not just be consist of sending students in herds to Paris or Florence, but also to get out of their comfort zone to India, China, Africa, Latin America. Several questions about empowering women in the United States. There are uh, persistent uh, issues that affect women here negatively, for instance, an income gap. In the state of Minnesota, two-thirds of the minimum wage earners are women. Uh, women are uh, disproportionately the recipients of violence in, in homes. Any comments or strategies about uh, empowering women in this country? Sure. I, I'd say that the two foremost issues here tend to be two that get rather less attention, and one is domestic violence, which uh, in some communities is a huge, huge issue. Um, and the second is, is trafficking here domestically in the U.S. And I think that there we sometimes have a, uh, the wrong focus, that we focus on foreign women who were brought in to brothels in this country. And that is indeed a problem. There is exploitation there. But the worst of the problems, it tends to be domestic American runaways, girls who are fleeing 
abusive homes or problems at home. Uh, they go to the bus station. A pimp buys them a lunch, and uh, next thing she knows, he's you know putting a gun in her mouth and threatening to blow her head off unless she has sex with ten men a day. And uh, it is just tragic that we end up arresting these girls and don't focus more on the pimps. Uh, the There, there really is a misconception about the role of the pimps in, in domestic prostitution. Pimps are not business partners, uh, with perhaps rare exceptions. I mean, there's a lot of variation in this, but, but for the most part, uh, pimps take every bit of money, all the money, 100% of the cash goes to the pimp. Uh, they sometimes uh, tattoo the girls under their control to limit their uh, ability to flee, and those girls have, they do not have the ability to move to a different pimp, to go to a different city on their own. Uh, if they do, they're really at risk of being killed. And uh, this is an issue that, you know, if a middle-class girl uh, goes missing, then there's an amber alert everywhere. Uh, every day, there are so many young teenage girls who go missing and end up in the hands of pimps, and they never make any of the cable news shows. Uh, that There's real injustice there. One final question. Are you hopeful about the status of women in the world today, given what you've learned and observed in your work? I'm hugely hopeful. This is a, a battle that we are winning. And I think that the most important reason is precisely the sense that if countries want to grow and develop and make progress economically, then this is the resource that they are best positioned to develop. China is an example that is near to my heart, partly because I lived in China a long time, partly because my wife and co-author is a Chinese-American. And you know, 100 years ago, China was perhaps the worst place in the world to be born female. You had foot binding, you had female infanticide, you had concubinage, um, you uh, had some girls in rural areas not even be given a name, just third daughter. Today, at its income level, it's one of the best places in the world to be born female. Uh, my wife's grandmother had her feet bound, and that is just, of course, unimaginable in modern China. I think that indeed is something that is going to spread, whether or not you get involved. But I hope it'll happen faster if you do get involved, and I hope you will join that movement out there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicholas Kristof. <laughs>